Ladies and gentlemen, good evening. Welcome to National Fire Radio tonight with Rob. Rob, thanks for hopping in again, pal. No problem. Good seeing you. Uh, and our guest tonight, Larry D. Camillo, the uh, fire chief in Stafford, Texas. Do I have that correct, Larry? You do. Fantastic. Thanks for joining us, pal. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Little, little background, um, real quick, how this all came about. Um, I got the, uh, the pleasure, the distinct pleasure to sit next to Larry at dinner in uh, Texas uh, <laughs> a, few, uh, a few months ago. So a little backstory, um, Steve Sanguidoce, who, is, uh, who runs Affordable Drill Towers, uh, he's a partner in it, um, and his company put together an incredible training weekend. We've talked about it before on our platform. Uh, and that weekend included instructors from all over the country, some of the biggest and best names around, uh, and then Larry. And, um, and so, <laughs> so, no, but <clears throat> the, the reason why I bring this up is we sat there and uh, we, got to, we got to meet everybody, for a lot of guys, for the first time um, that night when we went out to dinner during that uh, training conference weekend. I guess it was a Friday, yeah. Friday night, Thursday night, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and you and I ended up sitting next to each other and uh, we had a lot of, lot of back and forth. Um, yeah. I think you and I are very similar in a few, in a few ways. And, uh, and so it, I just, I, it hit off really well. Um, as much as the, uh, the conversation was good, it was more ball busting than anything else. Ball busting, sure. it was like shots fired consistently between consistently. the two of you. It was awesome. Uh, and then the I enjoy that. Back. What was that? And then the van ride back to the hotel. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Well, I mean, we're having a few soda pops. I mean, you know, things are going to happen, you know? Sure. Conversation keeps going and starts flowing even more and more. So, but it was it was a great experience because for me, that weekend really stuck with me in my, uh, you know, really my fire service career, if you will, just being surrounded by just an incredible group of people for a bunch of days. Um, but, Larry, you were a part of that, and um, and I really enjoyed um, our time with you as that weekend went on, and we had some good conversations. And then on top of that, too, um, that group has had a consistent text group going since that weekend, um, which I think is pretty cool because that group has remained pretty tight as time has ticked on. Um, you know, a lot of conferences I've been to, you get you hang out with the same guys for the weekend, you teach, you train, you lecture, and then usually you just go on with your day and, and you, you don't stay in touch like this group seems to have uh, stayed together. And I think that's uh, kudos to Steve and Affordable Drill Towers, but also to the guys that are in it um, to just keep that group um, alive and well. So it's been good. So um, I've always noticed in the text group, you've always had, you always take positions and you always stand by <laughs> positions and you no, but, but it's important because, you know, the one thing that's, that strikes me about yourself is that um, you can back up your, you know, you have a lot of punch and, um, and you, you have a, a really incredible, fire service career that we're going to dive into but because of that it allows you to be opinionated and it allows you to have a point of view on on a lot of topics and you're able to back them up and i appreciate that and i cherish that truly so welcome tonight brother thanks for joining us absolutely thank you for having me I, i'm looking forward to it yeah so i mean as this goes and as you know how we roll i mean it's really just an open and flow you know free-flowing uh, format but um you know i want to start maybe at the beginning um, maybe you can give us a little background about how you even got into the fire service and then uh, we just bring it full circle. Yeah, actually, uh, I was a college student uh, studying political science and living at home with my parents. And I went to the grocery store one night about 10 o'clock 
and I walked past, you know, how they used to have the books for sale and they had a big rack of them. I looked down and I saw a book called Braving the Flames uh, by Peter Fredericks, I believe. And right. it was, each chapter was about FDNY. And I got home, it was 300 some odd pages. I read that thing cover to cover in one night. And, and uh, when it was all done, I went down and uh, pulled some strings with whoever I knew to start volunteering with the local company, uh, City of Stafford uh, Fire Department, uh, which was a neighboring city from where I lived. So when you say you went home and read that book, I mean, were you, and you were in college, I mean, are you a student? I mean, do you enjoy studying and reading and, and learning? Because I, I, I think you do. I just, I, the reason why I ask that is because you're very well versed in a lot of the topics that we've discussed over time. And so I think that that has something to do with it. No. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, you know, I, I'm the first one that'll tell you, I don't know everything. Now I may act like I do. And it, <laughs> it's a running joke that I hate people who think they know everything because people like me that do, you know, yes. hate people like that. I get but it. In all seriousness. No, I consider myself, you know, after going on, 30 years in August in the fire service, there's always things you can learn. I've, I've ridden with different departments all over the country just to learn how they do it and see if there's a better way to skin a cat. You know, I, I think that from hose lays to splitting crews to fire ground assignments. Yeah. I mean, it, in this job, if you think you know everything, uh, you're destined for failure and you're going to repeat your mistakes. Yeah. Well said. I, I agree wholeheartedly. So, I like that uh, aspect of yeah, right. going to ride to other departments and, and seeing how other people do things because I think that in the fire service, people very much get into that, um, you know, that, that peg and that hole that they fit into and they don't, um, they don't really do that. How, Larry, how do you do that when you go to someplace else? How do you observe and, and, and how do you kind of dissect that? Because that's a process in order to go to someplace and look at a department's operations and then like kind of, you know, put it all together and then and make it fit. Is there a, a, anything you do particularly with that or? No, I just reach out to anybody I know. And you know how firemen are, you know, you know, a fireman in some place, you can daisy chain to a fireman wherever you want to try and get to. And mm -hmm. I've been fortunate from DC to FDNY to Chicago to San Francisco to Prince George County to uh, Detroit to everywhere in between. And you just, you, you establish a rapport you go up there and the first thing is you don't act like you know everything. You act as though you're a visitor and you're strictly there to learn. And I enjoyed immensely the opportunities of some of the conversations at two o'clock in the morning with squad one in Chicago or engine and ladder seven or truck seven in uh, San Francisco, or, you know, uh, the, the time with two thirty one engine and one twenty truck in Brownsville, Brooklyn, you know, you can learn so much just by watching. And if you're a student, yeah. like Jeremy said earlier, yeah, you have a basic idea of what you're doing and or what they're doing rather. And you just get a chance to see them put it all together. And it's like people think, you know, all the fire ground is, is orchestrated chaos, but everybody has a job. Everybody has a function. And to a lay person, it looks like, you know, mayhem. But in reality, the, you know, the outside vent guys doing this, the roof guys doing this, whoever's on the uh, nozzles doing this. And, and I, I just try and find different ways to do it and bring it back home. Awesome. I, and I love that because I mean, you just brought it right around. I mean, and that's why I asked being a student, you know, were you a student when you were growing up? Because um, I, I, I wasn't, you know, when I grew up, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stand school. I was just having that conversation with my daughter right now. She's 13. And, you know, and so, you know, I mean that whole thing, but in the fire service, I love it. 
You know, it's, it's, a, uh, it's an avenue that I fell in love with early on. And for me, I'll learn and try to take in every experience and learn everything I can in this industry. But I wasn't much of a student, you know, and I'm not much of a reader either. I don't have the time to sit and read books. And I wish I did, you know, but I find ways around that other ways. But, um, but I think being a student is so important, especially in this industry. Mm-hmm. Some, of those, some of those experiences, man, I mean, sitting around, like you said, in Chicago Squad too, and just hearing, listening to the stories. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, actually, it was with the commissioner's son at the time, uh, Lieutenant Altman, uh, was a commissioner uh, or Commissioner Altman, you know, but riding with squad one and seeing how they operate on the fire ground because we made a fire in a three flat. And, you know, just watching how they interplayed and how their fire ground functions. And it's not about comparing bunker gear and fire trucks and who wears cool stuff and who wears, you know, the backdraft flashlights and all the rest of that. It was actually seeing them function on the fire ground. You know, it, it's like a playbook in the NFL. You know, yeah. you can see your opponent's playbook, but it's all about how they execute. And in Chicago, I mean, I learned a lot there with riding with Engine 13 and Squad 1. You know, conversely, you know, you go ride with Ricky Riley and those guys at 33s in Prince George County, Maryland, and they operate differently because it works for them. But there's sure. so many different factors that cause things to be different. Well said. Well said. I mean, and surrounding yourself with great experiences like that, I mean, really shapes and rounds out who you are and who you become as well as a fireman. I mean, I can't stress that enough. Rob hit on it before too. And, you know, we have a lot of people, what, you know, listening to this, a lot of younger firefighters and, and I can't stress enough how important it is to get outside of your own influence or umbrella and go out there and try something or watch something different um, and go learn because that's the best way to round yourself out to be a better fireman. No doubt. I totally agree. Yeah. So moving forward, right? So you volunteered, and then what? After you uh, became a volunteer, after you read the book? Uh, yeah, I, I volunteered at Stafford for a couple of years. And in Texas, is you can go and pay for out of your own pocket uh, to go to a fire academy to become uh, certified to be hireable, if you will. And so I did that in a neighboring city. They had their own academy. Went there, and my aspirations were to work for this city. Uh, you know, and that was my goal. And then, unfortunately, my appendix ruptured uh, after I graduated the academy, like a week before the test. Wow. And so, after that, I wound up uh, taking the next available test on a fluke. I wasn't going to do it, but a friend of mine who's a lieutenant in a neighboring suburb said, come on, I'm going to go take the test. You come with me. Well, I went down there, took the test. I passed. He failed. I got hired. He didn't. And uh, it was kind of one of those things. <laughs> and it's kind of ironic. Thanks, thanks for the invite, brother. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And then really, I mean, and that was kind of it. And that was 20, well, a little over 27 years ago. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Yeah. And the whole time I still stayed in the city of Stafford, you know, I believe in staying where you started. And to me, Stafford's home. Uh, and granted, it's a suburb. We share a border with Houston. Okay. And so I've watched Stafford grow as a city, uh, as a department, our responsibilities, our roles, our call volume all the stuff that a big metro department has to deal with small suburban ones do also sure but you had a good influence right because coming up through the houston machine right i mean you were farming now for how many years in houston before you retired 27 to the day 27 years um on the line in houston and um, i know you worked in uh 68 mm-hmm. uh, busy very busy section and house uh, but i'm sure you bounced around the city too and had experiences elsewhere Actually, I was only ever assigned to four stations uh, in 27 years. One out of the academy, uh, Station 33, which is in the medical center. Uh, 
love the house, love the crew, but man, two fires in a year on probation wasn't cutting it. No. And it was time to bounce. And Southwest Houston is where the action was. So okay. I went to Station 10. Uh, damn good crew, excellent captain, and uh, had a great experience. And back then, the district chiefs had the ability to kind of pick and choose who they wanted in their districts. So I wanted to get in the district, make a good name for myself, and be able to go to a new station they were building, which was right in the middle of the hotbed of fire duty. Uh, where Station 68 and Station 48 was, there's it was no man's land, and they were burning up stuff on the daily. And so they were building a station there, so I wanted to go. So I uh, went to 10s for a year, and then after it opened, I put in a transfer. And my captain at the time on Engine 10 signed my transfer with three different Walt Disney names uh, to get it kicked back. He signed it with Donald Duck, Goofy, and Mickey Mouse, and every time the deputy kicked it back because uh, he wanted me to stay at 10s, and, and I enjoyed 10s. Right. Uh, but then I wanted to go to 82s. And so we, I, I had the privilege of opening up uh, Station 82 with just an engine, four-man crew, and a uh, damn good crew. And then uh, from there, I got recruited. Uh, he'll, he'll deny it uh, to this day because he said he'd never recruit me. But then I, I got asked to come over to 68s. And uh, I stayed there for the rest of my career through the different yeah. ranks. Can you, can you give us a quick breakdown for everybody listening and so on? Just Houston Fire Department, if you're not familiar. I mean, I'm not overly familiar with how many companies. Can you just give us the breakdown on, on the city itself? Yeah, probably the most under-marketed, under-appreciated fire department in the United States. Talk uh, about that. Third largest fire department in the country, uh, for depending on what criteria you use. Right. Uh, but I got to tell you, man, we have got some outstanding – I learned from some of the guys that just never got the notoriety because they didn't have FDNY in their code or Chicago or LA. But some of these guys helped really write the script for the American Fire Service. Uh, you know, we've got guys like Captain Clifford Reed. We've got Dale Jenkins. You know, we've got uh, Curtis Siemens. We've got some people that are uh, some, some firefighters that are legends in the Houston Fire Department that really orchestrated how we do things right. that at the end of the day, just never got that national level attention. But I'll be honest with you, for 625 square miles, you have everything in Houston that you have in every other city. It's just you have 100 degree temperatures and 99% humidity while you're doing it. And uh, I would put a Houston engine company and truck company up against anybody in the country because they're going to yeah. get the job done. And, uh, you know, it's like in that, uh, that last group podcast we had, you know, where I found myself – taking a differing opinion from, from Captain Dugan, you know, but he and I, and he and I were texting back and forth today, you know, before this, and, you know, we do what we do and they do what they do and it works for us. It works for sure. them. Of course. And, uh, but, but the Houston fire department by and large was probably one of the best and the saddest experiences of my life. And uh, you know, but, but you take the good with the bad, but I'll be honest with you. Uh, we had a crew and the Houston fire department, you know how it is, man, you ride in a rig with people and, and you do it long enough. And their family, I know it sounds cliche, but, man, we just had that crew. That's why I stayed a chauffeur. You know, I retired an engineer operator because I was happy being a pipeman on the back of Ladder 68 for 11 years because it was one of those things where you had that camaraderie. You know, Steve was our chauffeur. You know, I mean, and when you went to a fire, I mean, you went to work. You didn't play games. And that's all we did. We went to fires. We cut people out of cars, and we made an occasional medical call. We ate like kings, and we laughed all day. I mean – it doesn't get much better than that. And we got I a paycheck that. every two weeks to boot. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I know um, 68s is, is a very highly regarded house. 
um, in the Houston machine, um, you know, meeting Mo Davis, um, Steve, you know, and so on, and a couple other characters that we've met along the way. Um, a lot of roots seem to go back to 68, um, which I think is a big part of, um, big part of your life, you know. Um, sure. you talk about the good and the bad. I'm sure there's a lot of good. I mean, I, I went, you know, we, we talked a little bit before and you gave us a little background on, on your uh, upbringing in the fire service and so on. And, you know, um, you know, a lot of good. Um, you know, you've been involved uh, with rescues and, and made many major uh, significant, in, you know, uh, scenes and incidents and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, the other thing, too, the bad side of it, too, is tragedy. Um, a lot of tragedy runs. Uh, there have been tragedy and tragic moments in the Houston Fire Service history. Um, and I'm sure you were a part of many or a few. A couple. <clears throat> What's that? A couple, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, you know, um, when we talk about culture, um, I think that that plays a big part in the culture of a department. And you hope that, um, you know, through tragedy comes either lessons learned or betterment or the fact that, you know, uh, companies operated as best they can. But, you know, I don't know um, if you want to talk about that a little bit. Um, I'm not looking for specifics, but, you know, where you want to go with it. Um, but, you know, not everybody, a lot of guys go through their fire service career and they've never had any tragedy affect them. You know, they yeah. might have some smaller instances or situations, but they might not have lost a brother on the line or a sister on the line. Um, they might not have been involved in a, in a real tragic uh, situation. And those are life-defining moments for a lot of us. Um, in Houston, uh, how was, how, how'd you guys handle that? How, how did it go? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know really know what I'm asking, Larry. I, looking more of a conversation of, um, you know, how do we deal with tragedy and how does that affect the culture of our company and i was going to say just with the tail uh, tag on to that jeremy like 68 is a good house i think that there's that inner working and in the, in the time that you spent there like how did that mentality help shape you guys and get you through tragedy because like you said you're in a fire neighborhood you're going to fires you're having fun they're not all going to be sunshines and rainbows though so like in that core of being a good company you know, from the officer down to the backstep firefighters, what was it? What was the glue that kind of gets you guys to st uh, stick together and get through all this stuff? You know, in, in HFD, there was a, you know, unfortunately, I, I responded to two of them. We had the McDonald's Day fire uh, on uh, Valentine's Day, where we lost uh, Louis Mayo and Kim Smith. And that was the first female firefighter lost in the Houston Fire Department. And Kim was a rookie at 68s on our shift. And she had transferred out and then had come back to Southwest Houston. And, uh, and the irony there is, you know, I, I hate to say this, but, you know, it was one of those nights, you know, the booper hit, we turned left and within 15 seconds, they dropped the box going right. And we wound up with the one line apartment deal with 51's territory. And we're sitting there and they went on scene with fire through the roof of McDonald's. And we're listening to that. And y'all know how it is. And, and you understand the tone of voice of the chief officers. You understand the company officers, you know, when things aren't going the right way. And I told our captain from another part of town, he was on overtime or dead a day. And I said, Hey, he's going to pull a second. He's used up all his companies. And uh, he goes, you sure? I said, Oh yeah. And so he goes, put us available. So we had one line on the ground waiting on arson. So we hit the button, went back in service. And sure enough, he pulled an emergency 211 and I mean, we're literally taking our cross lay, throwing it in the cab, changing air bottles on the way, and we're booking down Bissonette. You know, it, it was one of those things. Where, to me, it was, you know, as a second alarm chauffeur, 
I ran up to the command post and I knew the chief. Uh, and he's a solid guy. And I said, hey, chief, what do you need? And he said, do a 360, find, find engine 76's crew. And I did a 360 and I came back. I said, hey, I got the captain and I got the chauffeur. I can't find the pipeman. Who are they today? And uh, he told me, and he said, do it again. So I went back and I did it again. And I came back up to him. I said, hey, I said, I got the captain. I got the chauffeur. I don't have the pipeman. And he goes, okay. And then right then, ladder 68 found uh, Lewis. Uh, they forced the back door, heard his T-pass or his pass at the time going off. And then uh, engine 10, engine 60, ladder 68 got him out. And I just remember running over there and I held Lewis's head when they intubated. And uh, that to me was a life-defining moment because Lewis was that old head. He was that rock at 76s. He was a solid guy that you never expected to see that circumstance at three or four o'clock in the morning. And then obviously, you know, uh, our medic unit and ambulance and everybody jumped in and did everything they could uh, for Lewis and got him to the hospital. And then, you know, unfortunately, Kim was found a little bit later uh, under tragic circumstances. And afterwards, you know, we went to the site at the time of the box for two or three years afterwards. And literally all the box companies would show up and we just sat there. Nobody said a word. But it was just that remembrance of what had taken place. And you made the resolve afterwards to not let it happen again. If anything came out of that, we took lightweight wood trust construction uh, in a different light. We thought about it, you know, before that, man, you're a badass fireman. You're going to run into anything that's got fire and smoke blowing out of it because you're invincible. And when that happened, you know, we just kind of, you know, you remember Kim and Lewis, you remember that, that fire, you try and learn from it and you move on. And then you fast forward to, you know, May 31st, that's, you know, the, the anniversary is coming up again and uh, of the Southwest end fire. And this time it hits home because it's your people. And so you know, it's, it's a building block. I hate to say that, but you kind of learned from the first one. And the second one, you know, was far more, you know, you lose four people, ultimately five, you know, it wiped out, uh, you know, the first new engine company, the second new engine company. And uh, it's one of those things where you go back and you look at the individual actions that everybody took. And, and afterwards, Jeremy asked a question, you know, in, in the days and weeks that followed, we were fortunate that we had a district chief who's housed with us. Uh, he's retired now. Uh, he knew enough to know that the men and women of the crew needed to make the decisions. And he didn't come in heavy handed. The officers didn't come in heavy handed and say, we will, we shall. They understood that the senior man and the crew as a whole was going to determine the path forward for the crew to maintain the crew. And we did that. And quite successfully, I I'm proud of is that the Houston Fire Department has a bad habit that within a year of a line of duty death, most crews fragment. They transfer, they move on. And our crew didn't. Uh, barring promotions, our crew stayed together. Uh, and we were tight knit and ornery as hell. And we didn't want outsiders. We had openings to fill, obviously, for the reasons. And we were extremely, extremely uh, particular and choosy because we didn't want somebody coming back to us that didn't understand us and that we didn't know. You know, we had two gaping wounds to fill with people that had really started to, to, to fit into our crew. And until you've been through that, until you dealt with the loss and you see somebody new, knowing that they're taking that person's place, uh, it's hard to articulate and hard to put into words. But, you know, I didn't talk to one of them for probably a month or two. Because yeah. at the end of the day, it wasn't their fault. It was just the circumstances they found themselves in.
Yeah, I, that's that's interesting. I mean, it's a really interesting point. I mean, you know, thinking about the crews, you talked about, um, you know, a lot of crews how they would how they would uh, fall apart, move on, transfer out, go somewhere else, um, and so on. But you know, I do you truly contribute that then to the house being able to manage yourselves, to to handle yourselves? The chief was hands off on the process because he knew how close you all were with it. I mean, is that do you think that's an important way? to address this because people are looking for answers out there. You know, not everybody knows how to handle situations like this. And I think information like this is so incredibly helpful because this is going to happen again. Um, it can happen anywhere. And, uh, and to be able to deal with it, manage it correctly so that, uh, you know, the fallout from it all is, uh, is as good as it can possibly be. Um, you know, that's, that's great. And Larry, you, I'm, I'm assuming you were probably a senior man. I mean, that was back in 2013. So, you had to be probably one of the senior men in that house, I would assume. On our shift, I was. And I think out of all four shifts, uh, I had the most time. Uh, yeah. And it was one of those things where we had a, a new senior captain. And seniors uh, ride the truck in Houston. Uh, juniors ride the engine. And it was one of those things where, you know, in the days and weeks that followed, we had great officers. Uh, we had even better uh, chauffeurs and pipemen that had been there a long time. And it comes down to, it was a collaborative effort. There's no one superhero trying to recover from this. Sure. It was, you know, and I think I said it before in that other group podcast, you know, it's those, and it wasn't me, but, but you've got those, those chauffeurs that equate to NCOs in the military. They're the ones that keep the captains from having to act as captains. They're the ones that have the tailboard conversations at three in the morning where you tell somebody, look, knock it off you know, straighten up, handle your business. Otherwise the captain's going to have to be a captain. And I got those look more than once where you're going to handle this. And after the Southwest end fire, it was just for a different reason. And it wasn't me stepping up. It wasn't any one individual. It was collectively because four or five of us had been together for 10 plus years. And it was one of those things where we cried together. We laughed together and we smiled together, but at the same time too, everybody has their strengths and weaknesses and we just had to collectively pull together and make sure that we weren't going to lose anybody emotionally to this, uh, like we had lost Ann and Garner uh, to the fire and Captain Renaud and BB and ultimately Captain Down. And it, it was a testament to the crew as a whole, not an individual. Yeah. And, and I'm, uh, that's something I've noticed about you um, is the I versus, you know, we um, conversation. Um, you know, you've, you've been through a lot in your 27-year career in Houston, which I think has molded and shaped you into the chief you are today in Stafford. You're now the uh, full-time chief in Stafford, uh, Texas, and so on. And, you know, your senior man responsibilities, your junior man upbringing through and so on, understanding that company mentality and culture of the we, it's about the men and women. Um, it's not any one single player. Um, that's a big point. And I know um, through a conversation with you a couple times, you feel very strongly about that. Absolutely. I mean, as a fire chief, I can have the greatest ideas in the world, but if I don't have good people that are going to carry them out and buy into it and make them happen and, and actually have them materialize on the street for the citizens, it's a moot point. And realistically, you know, in, in the city of Stafford, we're, we're very fortunate in that we're a very, we're a unique organization. We have a full-time component. We have a part-time component. We have a volunteer component. And it's taken many, many years to get all of them to be able to, you know, they can ride in a fire truck together, you know, flawlessly. 
Uh, they operate the same way. Uh, we don't have personalities. We don't have paycheck battles. Uh, you know, you're always going to have personality differences, but I'm extremely proud of the 93 people in the fire department uh, that I have that go out and give 110%. But until they come up with one-man fire trucks, which uh, hopefully NFPA will never endorse or ICMA, you know. I don't know, man. We're, we're starting to get more and more seats out of them these days. Well, and, and the fire service is a team sport. I mean, y'all know that. I mean, anybody who watches this knows that. You know, it takes X number of people to move a line. It takes X number of people to cut a hole. It takes X number of people to do a search. And at the end of the day, you know, you have to support the people that are out there doing the job. And my job as fire chief is very simple. I have peers that complicate it. I get frustrated with them at meetings. And my job is basically three tasks. My job is to establish a framework for people to work within. These are our guidelines. These are our policies. This is what we will and won't do. After that, my job is to go and fight the battle to get what we need from a funding source uh, from our city council. Our mayor and city council, yeah, there's bumps and bruises, but man, by and large, I can't complain. I've got a great council. I've got a great mayor. And okay, then after sure. you do that, the third thing is just get out of their way. I used to be in the weeds so much, and I've got officers now in Stafford that'll tell you that, oh my God, he was horrible. And it took me years to understand that if I don't trust them, then I don't need them. And realistically, I've got the right people in the right spots right now that handle business. And as much as I'd like to get out of the office and make runs, and I do, it's not out of necessity. It's out of wanting to be with the guys or the girls. It's wanting to get out there, make the run, share those experiences, you know, go to the shell station at the corner afterwards, buy everybody a Coke and say, hey, man, when's the next one? And outside of that, my job isn't difficult. If you have good people that are doing the job, you support them and you just let them do it. Larry, do you have like expectations for yourself? Like if somebody gets promoted, um, how, like what, what are you, like what's that conversation when you promote somebody up to a company officer as a, as a chief, like do you sit them down and say like, listen, you, like, I, you know, this is what I expect or do you have anything that, like, I don't want to say the pep talk, but you know. Yeah, I, I'm very fortunate in that I've got a training officer, uh, battalion chief that is probably the rock that carries a lot for us. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Jose Magana. I mean, that guy at the end of the day is who has really helped transform our department. We stole him away from another career department. He came over as our training captain and the roles and responsibilities that he has, uh, has really gone from training to operations and he has high expectations. And so what I found is that my conversation, when we promoted our first full-time lieutenants, it was very simple. If you own up, you know, after you mess up, then we're good. And, you know, always look out for your guys. If there's bad news, deliver it as quickly as you would good news. And at the end of the day, we'll circle the wagons, we'll protect the house, and we'll move forward. But if we got to eat something, we're going to eat it. Uh, we're, we're not going to sweep things under the rug. We're not going to ignore things. And sometimes those conversations are difficult. But at the end of the day, I'm very, very, very blessed to have good officers that lead their crews effectively. And that's on the part-time side too. We probably have the single best core group of part-time officers that work for neighboring um, career departments that work for us part-time. But I can tell you right now, I'm sitting here talking to y'all, they could be running an apartment fire right now and I know they're gonna handle it. Because at the end of the day, they have the experience, they know the expectations and they get the job done. And it, it's something you can't quantify or put a price tag on. Larry, I want to follow up with something that you said there about um, 
when you said like the whole bad news travels as fast as good news and circling the wagons and protecting the house um, and that it's not a cover up, but it's like, it just kind of touch on that just a little bit more because I think a lot of times, at least from my observation in the American fire service, there's a trend that's going away. Um, that's about like, Hey, it's risk mitigation. And it's, like I, I think there's a like it was a very powerful statement when you said like circle the wagons and we're going to protect the house I and mean, I just like, can you just expand on that a little bit more because like there's a balance obviously like there's sure. some things you can you can step in front of and then there's others you can't but I think that as a as an employee if I know that my boss is going to take that um, consideration and for me and that we ha we will protect the house and we will circle the wagons. Uh, it, it makes it a lot easier for me to, if I make that mistake, to, you know, kind of come come to the boss and say, hey, we've screwed this up. And, I, you know, I think from a management standpoint, there's a lot of people out there that are managers with it instead of being leaders. And that's really what I want you to kind of uh, uh, touch on with that. We, I have a very distinct opinion about management versus leadership. And uh, specific to what I mentioned, you know, if my guys own up and they say, hey, look, we messed this up, we did that. I'm not circling the wagons to try and protect anybody. We're going to find out the information. If somebody messed up, they violated policy, they did X, they did Y, we're going to deal with it. But at the same time too, there's a difference between making a mistake, which turns into a pattern, which turns into a habit, which turns into a trend. And you have to give your people the benefit of the doubt. I'm not the perfect fire chief, far from it. But I also believe that if they're going to expect me to back them up, I have to demonstrate that. And I, I, I have a unique situation in that being a line firefighter in Houston while also being the fire chief in the city of Stafford, I was able to balance those things that I saw that I didn't like in one place and make sure that I didn't replicate them in another. And I'm not perfect, like I said, but I think that supporting your people is first and foremost. And honestly, most firemen, 99% of firemen, they want to be held accountable, <clears throat> excuse me, when they mess up. But we are so, as a fire service, prone to smack somebody when they do wrong. But oh, yeah. God forbid we pat them on the back when they do good. And it's almost like some, my peers, they forget where they come from. And I don't wear a white shirt on a daily basis. I wear a navy blue shirt just like my guys do. And it's not because of some symbolism. It's because of the fact that I'll pull slack at a house fire just as soon as I will take command. You know, I'll play safety. I'll take Charlie division, whatever, because at the end of the day, the citizens don't carry the rank differential. They don't care what your title is. They just want their emergency mitigated. And to the management versus leadership thing, you know, I'll probably tell you, I would be more concerned with being known as a good leader than I would a good manager. A manager manages boxes of paper clips, some, anim, you know, object, that if you have two of, you try and keep two of. I would rather be known as a piss poor manager and a good leader because that's where the rubber meets the road. You have to have credibility with the troops and they have to know that whatever you're asking them to do, you either can do, have done or will do. And you know, management to me, it takes a person out of it. It takes that relationship out of it yeah. and, and just two distinctly different things. Yeah, I agree. I like that, I like that a lot. Um, it's made some real nice points there. Um, I, I think too, like we talk about this, I mean, so many fire chiefs have forgotten that they're still firemen or firefighters. It's a, it's a concerning topic for me when, you know, they, they, it's like they graduate to a different level and now they, they don't remember how to be a fireman or what goes along with that. 
Um, I think that that disconnect is becoming more and more. And as that disconnect is happening more and more, you're finding it's younger chiefs, younger managers or leaders, right? Quote, unquote, I'm doing quote signs, right? That they're, they're forgetting where they came from. They're forgetting that they're still a fireman. You said that you'll still pick up the line and push the line. Like, of course, right? I mean, I, I don't, I just, I don't understand the disconnect that we're having more and more than ever, I think, in the fire service. Well, I think well, that I, something what you just said was you see these people that are being younger chiefs or they're make, making officers younger, but maybe they didn't actually learn how to be that fireman first or that firefighter first. I look at Larry's firehouse at, at 68s and the, the hearing from him, the senior people he was surrounded by. And I look at like where I work now and how I think the average age of the like in time and grade for my department right now is like five years, I think, five or six wow. years. Yeah. So like, and we promote off of that. Like, did they really learn how to be a good firefighter? Did, did we do a good enough job of teaching them how to take care of people? And, you know, I, I can say that like it, we're, it's a work in progress for us, you know? Well, it's not an individual. What you've seen is you've seen the uh, attempt to turn the American fire service into a fortune 500 company. We talk about profit and loss statements. We talk about customers. We talk about balance sheets. We talk about line item budgets. And I find myself doing it. Today, I was doing it. You know, the office staff that I have, which is phenomenal, they're sitting there looking at, you know, line item balances. And it's one of those things where it's part of our job, but it can't be the job. Yep. You know, I, I tell people all the time that our service is predicated on getting on big red fire trucks. And we have to get on big red fire trucks and go out to provide our service to the community. Other city departments, they come to you. They come into City Hall and they pay a permit or they come into City Hall and they submit plans. But everything we do is very simple. We need to support the men and women on the apparatus. We need to make sure that the apparatus is taken care of. And you need to make sure that they're scored away with the training and the equipment they need to go out there and provide a service when somebody's having a bad day, potentially the worst day of their life. They don't expect us, <clears throat> excuse me, to show up and have amateur hours. You know, they expect a professional organization, regardless of if you get a paycheck every two weeks, to show up and mitigate their emergency. And it's my job, it's my responsibility to make sure that the crews that we put on the street are capable of doing that. And unfortunately, we like to use corporate buzzwords now. We use yeah. all these lame terms that at the end of the day, we're a blue collar job. We still get paid to get dirty. We still get paid to sacrifice our well-being and our sweat to get in there and get it done to save somebody's property or somebody's life. And that's not to minimize who we are, but the American Fire Service, I think, has evolved to the point now where there is that disconnect that you both mentioned. We have to understand that just because I ride around a Tahoe doesn't mean that when I show up in a fire, I don't have a responsibility to that citizen that called 911. Right. And I believe in making runs. I believe in getting out there. And unfortunately, I don't have the time I used to. And I've got battalion officers who are like, why are you here? You're admin. Well, they finally have understood that my job is to show up to fires and not to get in their way or take it over, but just I'm there to lend a hand. And if that means taking safety, if that means Charlie division, if that means taking a division, whatever, but also know that my role is to ultimately take it over if it's not going in the right direction. And I'm very fortunate that that very rarely has to happen. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of uh, Chief Crawford a little bit, Jeremy, when he was giving us that presentation. He's like, I'm not trying to take over this fire here. It's just I'm getting involved to make it move forward. And, right. you know. It, 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 but it's a, it's a team play, man. Yeah. You know, it's, especially it's funny on the, some of the some of the fire grounds I've been on where the command staff 
is not putting that fire in the right direction, we're not making progress, right? If we're not making progress, we're losing, right? I mean, that's really how the fire ground works in my eyes. Um, and so when, when things aren't progressing, you know, it usually goes to a, a crappier mentality and uh, this is my fire, it's I'm gonna do it my way or, or no way. And instead of that team mentality of like, hey chief, you know, we're not making progress here. What do you, what do you think? You know, let's have a conversation. Maybe we can find another way. Maybe we can find a different task or, or ideal of what we can do here to, to find a betterment to the situation so we can move forward. Um, you know, I think too, Larry, and I want your take on this is, you know, today more than ever, it's more about me and less about the we. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I try and avoid using the word I and me. Right. Uh, it's we and us. And because, again, it's a team sport. And I know I sound like a broken record, but until we realize that there's three or four people on a fire truck going out to serve the community, it, it's just that. And my job is to provide those guys and girls what they need and then allow them to do their job. When I and me gets used, at least typically with me, it's when I feel I have to defend the actions of the organization or the organization as a whole. And that's when I will say I. That's when I will say my department. Because in the absence of those moments, it's our department. Again, back to what I said earlier, I can have the greatest ideas in the world, but if I don't have 93 people that buy in and carry them out, it's useless. And I I've come up with some humdingers, don't get me wrong. I've come up with some really, <laughs> really ludicrous ideas. But what I've learned over the years is that I would come up with a, an order or a guideline or a policy and just boom, this is how it is. And what I realize is that I wind up looking, I look like a complete idiot when I have to go back and amend it four times because I didn't think about X, Y, or Z. Sure. Now I send it out to a core group of people and say, what are your thoughts on this? You know, where am I missing the mark? Am I on point on this? And that way they get their say in it and we're able to move forward collectively with joint ownership. I think the important thing too, though, is the ownership of it, right? I mean, you own it. As the chief of the department, you just said, the only time I use I or me is when I have to own it, right? And, and I think that's important, right? And you're, you're sending out ideas and guidelines to uh, command staff or uh, other officers for their input to bring it back. That's a we move. But if town hall comes down and starts, you know, knocking on the door and you're, you're, taking, you're individually taking responsibility and ownership for anything that is happening on that level. And I just, I don't know, like, I love that. And I, I, I've, I hope to think that in my career, I'm very much the same way. Um, but I'm thinking more and more now than ever, we're throwing people under the bus. We're not owning it. We're not accepting responsibility. Um, it's easier to point the finger and it's easier to, you know, not, not many guys have fallen on their sword anymore. No, I mean, and, and you take us. I mean, and we've had citizen complaints about X, Y, and Z. And we had Everybody a- Everybody does. It's fact of life. I don't want to say a contentious one. But we had one that we opened up a formal IED on uh, probably two, three years ago. And we're fortunate that they don't happen a lot, but we had a police, police department lieutenant uh, did the investigation. He pulled audio. He pulled video from patrol cars. He did everything. And when it came down to it, he referenced our policies. And when you got down to it, the lieutenant in question that was accused did nothing wrong. The hardest part was going to the complainant and sitting down with them and saying, look, this is the deal. And you go to their venue and I wasn't going to make the Lieutenant go with me, but he said, Hey, I'll go with you. So I took him off the rig. We went, we sat down and that person said, all I want is an apology. And I said, with all due respect, you know, I can't find any reason to order this man in this case to give an apology. 
Now, the lieutenant stepped up and he apologized for any misunderstanding. But at the end of the day, I was not going to order somebody to apologize for something that he was not found to be at fault at. And, you know, politically, is it dangerous? Yeah, I guess so. You know, absolutely. Could that person have gone and continue to complain? Sure. Uh, But realistically, we had done our due diligence. And I I just think that we're too quick to chunk people under the bus and and take the hit, you know, take one for the team and everything will be better. But now, had he screwed up? Yeah, we'd have the conversation we deal with it. But in this case, you know, you have to back up your people in the absence of a reason not to. And unfortunately, it's the opposite in a lot of parts of the country. The easy answer is throw him under the bus, blame him or her, and then move on because you save face as the head of the organization. And don't get me wrong. I've had some knockdown drag outs uh, with my boss, but it's always been respectful and it's always been from a very entrenched position on his part and an entrenched position on my part. We agree to disagree, but I think it can be done respectfully. And I think that that transcends down to how you treat your people. You know, it's, we complicate this job as chief officers. We really, really complicate it by overthinking it. We worry about outside perceptions instead of internal ones. And a lot of times too, when we're coming up through the ranks, we don't worry about that. Right. And then we get to that chief position or command staff position all of a sudden we have to worry about this bigger picture. And then all of a sudden the same thoughts and the same concepts that got you through your first 15 years or 20 years on the job, they, they seem to tend to take a, a, a seat, a side seat to like this new mindset that you have to bring on for this, you know, command staff structure. I think that that's where the disconnect is. I think there's a lot of disconnect there. Well, and, and that's just the administrative side that operationally, you know, as you assume greater roles and responsibilities in an organization, your perspective changes. Yeah. And I'll be the first one to tell you that my perspective changed significantly when I became the fire chief. I've always said I was a better number two than I am a number one. If it has to do with lights and sirens, hey, man, that's my deal. If it's on fire, somebody's trapped in it, hey, man, I'm good. It was the learning the other part of the job that became difficult but I had to do it if for no other reason than for the benefit of the personnel. And I consider myself a convincing person. I consider myself having the ability to go out there and make our point uh, for the organization. And we've been successful as a whole. It's not because Larry's successful. It's because the organization as a whole. Credibility is a two-way street. You know, you have to have credibility with your troops, but at the same time too, organizationally, you have to have credibility when you're asking for things from your governing body. How'd you learn the administrative um, struggle, the, the stuff like the administratively that you, you just referenced there, you know, the fires, the rescues, you could do that. The administrative side of it is a difficult side. And I know a lot of people, um, they reach that point and they're like, oh no, like how, what, what, how did you overcome that? Like what were some of the, the, the tips and tricks that you, you did? Was it going to education or was it like just like brute, you know, stubborn? I'm going to learn this. OJT, you know, I watched my predecessor, who I was an assistant chief for. I watched where he was successful. I watched where he wasn't. I watched other chief officers where they were successful and where they weren't. But I tried to always maintain that my butt's still getting on a fire truck mentality. And so you have to temper what you think you need to do with what you actually do. And uh, again, I don't profess to be the best fire chief in the world. Uh, I don't profess to think that everybody that works for me loves me. Um, but as long as they can say 
that I've treated them fairly and that organizationally we've done the right things. But to answer your question, it's on the job training. It comes down to this worked, this didn't. You understand people's hot button issues. You understand what they're always going to be in support of, what they're always going to be opposed of. And it's no, it's more, no more difficult than the U.S. military or any military, you know, planning to confront, uh, you know, their opposition on the battlefield. You have to understand their strengths and their weaknesses. You have to have a convincing point and you have to be able to execute uh, with violence of action. And to use that term, you have to be willing to lay it all out on the table, but you can't do any of it without being truthful. And you have to be honest to yourself and you have to be honest to the person you're talking to. Again, back to the deliver bad news as soon as you would good news. Mm. Larry, let's change direction a little bit, man. You mentioned before in the conversation, you said in passing when you were uh, a Houston fireman and chief of the Stafford Fire Department. Um, interesting to me and Rob in the Northeast, um, most guys up here really don't have two fire jobs. They might have a career fire job and then a side gig, a trades job or something like that. But uh, very commonplace for you guys down South to work two, two or three fire jobs um, and so on. I find it fascinating that you're a, a career chief in one city and a fireman in, in a, you know, in an alignment in the other. So um, can you talk about that a little bit? It's a balancing act, you know, yeah. it comes down to having to be able to check ego and personality. And when I pulled up to station 68 for our tour, I understood my role. I understood my responsibility. Uh, and at the same time too, you know, when I got up the next morning and I went to Stafford, I understood my roles and responsibilities. We're fortunate in that we have a lot of personnel that do that. Uh, I've got 41 part-timers that to work for us part-time, you have to work someplace else as a career firefighter. It's a job requirement. And those 41 people, pretty much without exception, are able to check that. They're able to understand that they may be a company officer or a battalion chief in a neighboring career department. But when they come to work, work for us, they're a pipeman or a chauffeur or, or a pipeman or a company officer. And we've been very fortunate with the people that we have. And I think that you just have to understand your roles and responsibilities based upon the uniform that you're wearing. Sometimes it gets complicated. And quite honestly, sometimes it's an advantage. You know, there are some situations in Houston that because of my experiences in Stafford, I was able to, uh, I don't want to say lend a hand, but potentially offer a different perspective and vice versa. Gotcha. It's just, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, Checking it out the door, I think, is always important. It's, it's, a, it's a hugely important thing. And, but I think, too, when you allow for that type of setup, man, you got 41 line firemen or officers that are working in another district or city. I mean, you're talking about an incredible amount of experience coming in from all over. And that has to really do something for Stafford and for you. I'll be honest with you. You know, our full-time component has only been with us going on four years. Before that, you know, we have a good group of volunteers. Um, you know, we're not a traditional volunteer department. Uh, right now, it's, what, 818 here, and I've got at least four or five volunteers in a fire station staff and an engine, and they'll stay there until in the morning, and they do that every night, and they do it for 24 hours on Saturdays and Sundays. They understand where they fit into the equation. They do their job, and the expectations of them are no different than the full-timers at Station 1 or the part-timers at Station 3. They show up on the fire ground. If you're first in, you handle first in responsibilities. You give a radio report, you put water on the fire, you do a search and the second in cavalry will arrive. And conversely, if you're the second in cavalry, then you do what your roles and responsibilities are. 
But our part-time people, those 41, carry an immense amount of responsibility on their shoulders. They have helped guide our organization to where we are now. And we've got some people that are phenomenal on the fire ground. I could be in the Cayman Islands. And if I know that I've got them there, I'm good. I don't stress out about it, even though they're only part-time, because they take it seriously. I mean, you've got guys that, that work in moderate size or medium size neighboring suburban departments. I mean, these dudes are aces. I mean, when yeah. they show up on the fire ground, you know, when I make fires with them and they're at their career job, they don't function any different there than they do for us. We're very, very fortunate, and I dare say the word blessed, to, to have that skill set come to work for us, whether it's an eight-hour day or a 10-hour day or a 24-hour shift. You know, when they walk in the door and put their, and put their gear on the apparatus, you know, there's a set of comfort. I mean, and there's a sense of, hey, man, the citizens are squared away because these guys, hey, man, they call 911, whether it's a medical call, whether it's a trauma call, whether it's a fire, whether it's a rescue, they're going to handle business and hard to quantify the reassurance in that. I, I love that everybody that we've uh, interacted with from the Houston area or from down south is, or just in Texas in general, Louisiana, is a constant theme that you guys are talking about the citizens. And it comes up in almost like the majority of the conversations that, like, and I just, I, I, I think it's so important because there's so many places that are losing that concept. Like Jeremy kind of mentioned in the beginning about the, the me when it comes to like, you know, people thinking like you guys are putting that, um, you're, you're dropping that seed that it's about the citizens. It's about who we're all supposed to be here for in the first place. And it just goes to speak to the organization and, and the expectations you guys kind of set out. Well, I, I think it's important. I mean, we don't run around on fire trucks and burn diesel just to look cool. You know, it, it's one yeah. of those things where the citizens call 911. You're expected to show up with a certain amount of skill, a certain amount of compassion, and a certain amount of, you know, uh, ability to solve the problem. And whether that's one company, three companies, or eight companies, you get there and you begin down that path. And I, I think it's wildly important and it's often understated. And, and you go back to the Brunicini coloring book, which drove me nuts, you know, about customer service. But when you get down and you peel away all the cartoons and you peel away all the graphics, we only exist because of the citizens. You know, and, right. and we, and too many organizations lose sight of that. I think you just talked about compassion and that's one thing that people really like there's no class and compassion uh you know for people coming compassion to the is cool uh you know people think that the big salty fireman with the cool mustache and the burned up helmet and the bunker gear that looks like it's 20 years old and you've been through hell and back that that's cool i used to subscribe to that theory I i'm ashamed to say that i've got four or five burned up helmets in my office on top of my credenza because at some point i thought it was a cool thing and realistically, I would lose it if any of my guys had helmets that looked like that. A, why wasn't it reported? And B, what did you get yourself into to get like that? You know, but it's, it's one of those things where, again, with responsibility, you know, growth perceptions and, and, and your priorities change. And the last thing I ever want to do is have one of my guys in that situation where his helmet gets trashed like the one I have on my desk. So, you know, we, 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 we definitely got to check our hypocrisy at some point. Hypocrisy is a great word, man. It's a great word. I don't think it's talked about enough because um, there's a lot of it. Um, you know, it's uh, I, I had a conversation with somebody the other day. I said, if you're going to do it, do it with me. And they're like, well, what? And I said, because I can talk our way out of it. Or, you know, it was one of those things where <laughs> line of, no, but think about it, right? It's one of those things that's like skirting a line that 
if you have a hard-ass chief, he's going to come down on you. He's going to call you out. If you got a chief that understands why we made that decision, right, and the fact that you have a senior guy there with 24 years in making that decision with a more junior guy, we probably will we'll explain it. I'll explain it, and we'll get away with it. But I'm not saying get away with it, but uh, there's a reason why we did it. I can explain our point of view, and with my experience, we should be able to get the green light passed. But if he does it by himself, the conversation is much more going to be, hey, man, you can't do it that way. It's not how we do it, you know, and so on. And so there's that level, um, not that maybe that equals hypocrisy, but we very much have that in the fire service where there's different levels. Uh, with management comes certain guys can do more and certain guys can't. You know, this guy can get away with more, this guy can't. We have rules in place with all this COVID stuff right now. We have all these rules. I mean, we have new guidelines coming out every single day. Half of them aren't being followed the way they're supposed to be. I mean, it's just, we're trying, but they're not. And it's like, well, here's another one. Here's another one. You got to know this. And it's only convenient when we get caught and somebody calls us out on it and says, hey, man, you didn't do this. You didn't have the proper protection or, you know, you had too many guys in on that, in that building for the investigation. We get called out on it when it's convenient, but not every single time. Well, it's kind of like the RIT team. Everybody thinks it's a RIT team it is wildly important until it's you. Then all of a sudden, nobody wants to do it. Right. You know, it, 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 <laughs> that's, a, that's a fantastic point. I love it. That. It's true, though. You know, oh, yeah, we got to have a RIT team. Oh, yeah, it's on your checklist. Okay, got to have a RIT team. But then when you, <laughs> you get assigned it, all of a sudden. I got to write that down, brother. That's going to be, that's like, that's a fantastic one. I like that a lot, man. But I mean, we've all been assigned RIT, and you hope to God you're never going to be utilized but at the end of the day 99% of the time we're not but it's still a necessary function and do you put your A team on that or do you put your B team do you just put up you know whoever happens to show up on that you got to have guys and girls that are going to show up and handle their business and are ready to rock and roll when bad things happen but to, to the hypocrisy point you know I guess it comes traffic vest and that was my big thing a number of years ago you know, we put out traffic vests. We have too many fatalities on roadways with firefighters and public safety in general. And we put it out. Well, I find myself being the biggest violator when we put that out. I jump out of my Tahoe, happy-go-lucky, and I don't have a vest on. You lock it up on us, Larry. Can you hear us still? Losing them. Rob, you don't have them, do you? I don't. I just got them. <laughs> That's right. Larry, if you can hear us, sign out and sign back in. It's no big deal. We'll edit the we'll edit the recording. It's not a big deal. I mean it looks like a prize fighter. It looks like he got beat up. Yeah, it's cozy's in. I know. That or he's taking the most uh there he is. I'm back. You froze up, man. No problem. We leave off. I was on a rant, so there's no telling what kind of wisdom and knowledge I convinced myself I was saying well you were talking about the traffic vests years ago oh yeah the hypocrisy you know and I found myself being the biggest hypocrite I threatened these guys you better wear your traffic vest unless you're wearing bunker gear and blah 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 and then I'm bouncing out of a Tahoe at two o'clock in the morning on a roadway incident without my vest and they're looking at me going really so you know it's I don't know if you heard my comment you know Doc Holliday had that line in Tombstone you know my hypocrisy only goes so far so realistically, I had to go back, eat crow, put my vest on, and now I carry it in the door, and when I bounce out, I got it there. So it's one of those things where you can't write rules. As the U.S. military says, never give an order you know won't be followed. Right. And realistically, if you put something in writing, you know firemen. They're going to expect you to do it as well. 
And I'm not perfect. They're not perfect. So you just have to have that ability to look at them and say that, that unspoken really. And cause trust me, they'll give it to you. 100%. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. So where are we going from here? I mean, what's next for Larry D. Camillo? I mean, you've been uh, chief of the department now in Stafford for uh, since what, 2006? Somewhere so, like that. doing it um, for a while. I mean, you're absolutely in love with the fire service. That weekend we spent um, in Hutto and uh, Rob, where else? Bass Trap. Bass Trap. Um, you know, you were, yes, and you were leaving early from that weekend. For hours. Oh, so you had to bring that up. Come on, what? man. And, I get no. beat up every day. Every time in the group text, hey, you leaving early? No, I did. Uh, yeah, but, I but listen, there's, there's, <laughs> there's something to be said for that, man. There's something to be said for that. You know, it's when, when you get surrounded by good things, you don't want to be, you don't not want to be a part of it. And you want to be no, there. I, I agree. And, and I really wish I would have stayed for, uh, the shindig afterwards, uh, I saw the pictures. Uh, I know some of my guys partook in uh, the festivities. Yeah. Um, but, uh, no, uh, you know, for me, there's still some things that I want to get done uh, for the city of Stafford. There's still some growth potential that I see. Uh, we have a lot of redevelopment going on. And I think that it, it's it's another set of challenges. And and I don't want to say that we're going to grow the department exponentially. But, but there's some other things that we want to do. You know, we want to get a new fire station admin building opened up, hopefully by June that's being built, you know, I'd love to be the guy that brought a tiller to South Texas. Uh, but Hey, those are lofty aspirations. Uh, you know, but <laughs> let me, let me ask you this, Larry, not to, not to cut you off, but there's so much to talk about here. I know in, in some areas of Texas, there's a lot of fast growth. Are you, are you guys raised for real fast growth? You, you grew oh. with like 3000 in your population between the census. I, yeah. I was looking up the city before we started talking. Yeah, we've got a big development where Texas Instruments uh, used to have a big, huge 192-acre facility. That's all being redeveloped now with hotels and restaurants and uh, uh, top golf-type golfing places and just all right. sorts of other stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it's great for the city economically. Uh, it's great for the revitalization of, of, of that industrial area. So, no, we're, we're looking forward to it. Uh, and it's also going to increase the demands of the department. Well, you that's know, what I was going to say, right? So, so as the department has to grow quickly with a, with a quickly changing uh, demographic come the growing pains of growing the Metropolitan Fire Department, right? Sure. Yeah, and, and when you share a border, you know, and there was a time 20 years ago when you left the city of Houston on US 59, you knew when you left the city because everything changed. The development changed. Now when you leave the city of Houston on 59, uh, as you cross over Willcrest uh, Road, you don't know the difference because it's the same urban sprawl. So yeah. with that same urban development, commercial development, residential development, comes the same calls for service. Our police department sees it. Our building department sees it. Our fire marshal's office sees it. Uh, you know, it, it's just one of those things. It, you know, it, it's just additional responsibility with growth. And so as, a, as an administrator, it's one thing, right? I mean, you got you know, everything from budgetary things on down to staffing to equipment, the new firehouses and so on. Right. And, and call response and adequate coverage. But then there's that other thing too, that, that in-house thing that you did at 68 and at 33 and at 10 and at 82, the culture. When, when talking with guys from across the country that are in fast growing areas of the country, they open up new firehouses, like, uh, like it's a new uh, community center, a new Starbucks, you know, and you walk in and the walls are gray and the building is drab and there's no culture. 
There's no history. There's no tradition. Um, you come from a department, a, a big urban department that has a tremendous amount of culture and tradition and company pride. Um, talk about that a little bit. I mean, that, that's got to be an obstacle and a hurdle, no? That and I'd imagine the part-timers that you have coming in, you're like, this is such a good core of people, probably help infuse a little bit of that culture in because... I hope so, yeah. Yeah, I mean... Sorry, I'm just going. Well, it's kind of like Baskin Robbins. You know, you can walk in the door and you can pick from 31 flavors. And and when you look at it, you've got 31 different takes to, to, to use that Baskin Robbins model, you know, uh, of how to accomplish A or B or C or X, Y, or Z. And so with that, you know, you've got a certain amount of, uh, I hope that they have a certain amount of pride in it. The volunteer component of the department takes extreme pride in the fact that they're engine 22. They've got a brand new Pierce rescue pumper. And that, I tell you what, that son of a gun, you can eat off of it night and day. Uh, it's clean. They know where everything is. It's squared away. It's checked out. And at this time of night, they're probably at some local restaurant. Well, I take that back. They would be at some local restaurant eating. They probably picked up something to go. But our full-time component has a certain amount also uh, amongst themselves in Station 1 on Truck 21. Our part-timers on Truck 23 in the north end, you know, they have their way of doing things. But just because it's different doesn't mean it's wrong. And we have to understand that we've only got three stations. And out of those three stations, you're going to have different, different personalities. You're going to have different skill sets. Of course. You're going to have different abilities. And as long as you find a way to collectively harness them for the good of the organization as a whole, you know, I'm all about pride. You know, at 68, I considered myself the morale officer. My yeah. job was to walk around, make sure that everybody – had a smile on their face or I said something stupid that made them say, you know, made them laugh, you know, but I was also the person that had to go down the hallway, you know, when they say, Hey, somebody needs to go talk to the chief. Exactly. And I was that person. And it wasn't because I was the best suited or I thought I was the greatest. It's just, you have to be willing to go in there and say, Hey, do you have a minute? And part of that comes down to pride. And yeah. I've, I've, I've told him, I've said it before cause we've had it happen. I was driving when I was still driving the engine, you know, you roll up on a four, what went to a four eleven fire. Well, you pull up and you got a 24-unit, two-story flat roof garden apartment rocking. And the only person on that fire truck from our crew was me. Everybody else was fill-ins or overtime. And it didn't matter when the track hoe was knocking right. it down eight hours later. What it came down to was the fact that everybody remembered there was a 68 on the side of the fire truck that was first in. And that it was a shift that was working. And that's what we tried to beat into our rookies' heads, figuratively speaking, that it reflects on us. And people are only going to know that it was 68s. And the same thing applies with our guys, you know, truck 21, my, uh, our station one in Stafford. If they can beat in a neighboring company and get to the roof or get the first line or whatever else, they're all about that. Yeah. It comes down because they want to do the job. And unfortunately, I think that too many places you have people that are looking to avoid doing the job. They, they want to come in and they want the schedule. They want the t-shirt. They want the title. But when it comes down to it, they're the same ones that'll look at you and say, wait a minute, I have to go through the door? Well, yeah, unfortunately, that's part of the gig. You signed up for it. So I don't want to hear about an SCBA malfunction at the doorway. If you checked it out that morning, you know it's good to go. You know, and, and unfortunately, you've got to get people comfortable with that. But that's where I go back to my training officer that I talked about earlier. That guy is key. He makes sure that everybody is capable and willing to do the job. Uh, he's, not a, he's not an easy person to please. He's not an easy person to pacify, satisfy, or in any way make feel comfortable. But you're going to know where he stands, and he, he carries out the expectations of the department as a whole. And he's going to be the first one there 
telling you whether you met them or you failed. What is, um, for departments that are growing, what are, uh, what are some of the pitfalls or the dangers that you think are out there as like, you know, said that these departments that are out growing exponentially with new growth, uh, whether it be building construction or whatever developments, like what are things they need to be aware of in your opinion? That's like the, you know, number one danger. Like I always think of people telling me, don't worry, that's just a sprinkler building. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> got it. But like, Honestly, I, I think that we get too rushed with our hiring processes. I think we're worried about putting butts in seats and filling slots. And I think that, you know, we just recently hired five more full-timers. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in the process of hiring a sixth. And we're very fortunate that out of those five that we've hired that finished their four-week FTO, they all, you know, we hired three of our volunteers full-time and two of our part-timers full-time because of the fact that they just came out. It wasn't because it was handed to them. They didn't get any favors. They didn't get any points. They didn't get anything. They just came out. And w when you get down to it, I think that speaks to them individually but it also speaks to the fact that they wanted to be part of the organization and collectively will be better for it. But yeah, our hiring process, you know, the, and as the size of an organization gets bigger, uh, you know, you exponentially, people think that, Oh, a large, you know, Los Angeles fire department has X number of problems or the New York city fire department ha has X number of whatever. But realistically, when you get down to it, every part, every organization has the same number Statistically, it's just a percentage of the size of your organization. I think if you take care in your hiring process, I think that if you truly do a good background, if you find out what these people are about, and if you truly get to know them and you understand what they bring to the table, I think you'll, I think you'll hit it out of the park every time. But I think to answer your question, you know, we really need to make sure that who we're hiring understands the job they're getting into. Because there's too many people nowadays that get into the job and they have no idea what it's about. You know, yeah, you have to deal with people that are bleeding. Yes, you have to deal with body parts. And as graphic as that may be, but unfortunately, that's part of our job. Yeah. And there's mechanisms to help people deal with that. But I think that too many people watch too much TV and they think they know what the American Fire Service is about. Do you have a lot of volunteers in your area? I mean, a lot of guys getting on the job down there, do they come from a past like you did? Oh yeah. Uh, it's very common down here uh, where a lot of the volunteers, that's what they aspire to, you know, and everybody wants that career job, and, you know, and me, you know, my appendix ruptured. I missed a job with the department that I grew up around uh, and that I lived in uh, their city. And I was fortunate enough to be able to, to go to work for the, you know, the home team, so to speak, you know, the big boy in the neighborhood and had a lot of great experiences, got to work with some people that, you know, I would have never got a chance to listen to or learn or watch or be on the apparatus with, you know, some of the most confidence inspiring things in the world that I try and maintain is, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard of a captain named Clifford Reed. Uh, he's a legend in the Houston fire department. He developed the Reed hood and some other things, but he, he, he's been retired for a number of years, but he took the time to show up at my retirement party, he drove all the way in and he showed up at my retirement party. And that meant the world to me, not because, oh, hey, I'm flattered, it's my ego. It was the fact that he and I made some fires together and he really helped me. He was world known for, or at least in the use of fire department, he used the word babe all the time. And we pulled up and we were on a medical call, cleared it, pulled up, two-story rocking. We're third in, should have been first, but we were tied up on a medical. And engine 10 stretching the line. 
And the captain on engine 10 is a great guy. He's got a pipe and the captain says, hey, get that line. Well, Captain Reed says, take the nozzle. So I walk up and say, hey, man, go pull slack. I got your line. Well, silly rabbit. He gave up the line. Uh, I got the nozzle. He's pulling slack for us. And, you know, it was one of those things where Captain Reed, when this man pats you on the butt and he says, you ready, babe? I said, yeah. I mean, and we walked in. We had a garden apartment on the left, first floor going. Garden apartment on the right, first floor going. Second floor left and right going. We went in, put, in the, put out the first floor. He came back out and he says, hey. He goes, give the nozzle back to Tens. They're about to cry. And, he, uh, and at that point, he's like, we did our part. Tens went up there, put out the second floor. But it was the fact that he did it so matter-of-factly. Right, he, right, right. On that dance, he took a young guy like me, who he didn't know from Adam at the time, and he inspired so much confidence because of his confidence and his reputation that you did not worry at all that something bad was going to happen. That's right. It was phenomenal. What an incredible I mean, experience. I'm thinking about it right now because, I mean, it, it was that – I hate to use the word transformational, but it was that significant to me that this man who doesn't know me, but yet trust me to say, all right, you're riding on my fire truck. Let's go. What that does for a young impressionable fireman, it's like that could change his whole career, brother. I mean, sure. that really teaches that lays the foundational brickwork to like, for you to want that poise as you get older. Right. I mean, that's, that's just an awesome story, man. Oh, it, it, it's true. And, and, and fortunately, you know, we, we have a lot of the, what we call old head captains like that, that I, I drove a captain for five years on the engine, uh, you know, Russell Scott Harris. And you always remembered his name because he always told you when he was mad. And, uh, you know, he, he's a legend in Southwest Houston. You know, I think Engine 68 was involved in more pursuits than most HPD officers. Uh, but when you showed up at fire, if it was your house, you wanted him and his crew. Hey, man, when they stepped off, it was full battle ready, you know, battle rattle. They're ready to rock and roll, and it's time to get to work. But he yeah. was that guy that inspired it. And his famous quote that I'll always remember, he said that he would bankrupt himself to defend his guys. And that resonated with me because he would. I mean, there were times where the, some of the things that we did on Engine 68, you looked at it, you looked at him afterwards, and like, well, how long till the phone starts ringing? Right. But – but the motive was to benefit the citizens. Absolutely. If, if we broke a policy or if we violated X, Y, and Z, it was for the good of the situation which benefited the community or the firefighter. That's we right. weren't worried about the pomp and circumstance. That's, and that's what I was talking about before. And I think that's so important, right? And to be able to teach that through experience so that the younger guys understand it so that one day they turn around and realize they're now that guy that has to set the tone and, and, understand the bigger picture of things like that i love that man i i don't know how we teach it you know i always I, I think to myself a lot like i hope that when i leave my company um i leave some type of lasting impact that it was influential that just to better the company or better the department right that i hope that my small piece of whatever i do uh helps the others be better and bigger and, and the company to be better and bigger and i I think that's always the, the common process is we always want it to be um, better after we leave, you know, leave our stand and move on. Yeah. I mean, is, is every, every career, every industry has those people that clock in and they clock out. Right. And when they get home, Hey, they're good. You know, yep. you've got in the fire service, you have a much larger percentage of people that, it's not just a job, it's a career. And I know that sounds cliche. I, I call it a lifestyle. Yeah. 
It very much is. You know, I used yeah. to get help all the time. When I talked earlier about I'd go and ride different parts of the country. Sure. I had an old senior captain uh, that loved him to death. We still talk to this day. He would give me hell about, wait a minute, so you take vacation from the Houston Fire Department to go right. ride. He's go to another firehouse. Yeah. He goes, are you, do you need help? I mean, he, he would ride me to, to all day and all night. But, you know, I, I think it came down to, you know, part of it was I've always had an interest in, in fire apparatus and the evolution of. That's why my deal with truck uh, operations and truck placement, you know, and, and not to get off track here, but, you know, no, you tell the average fireman who drives a truck or operates on a truck, they couldn't understand. They need to understand the engineering behind what they're working with. And unfortunately, too many people don't. And I think that if you understand what you're operating with, it allows you to, to utilize it better. It allows you to position it better. And it allows yeah. you to understand what it will or won't do. And too many times, you know, in Bastrop and in Hutto, and that's what I was covering. And you look at these young guys and they're like, yeah, but it's a ladder truck. I'm like, well, what's the tip load? Well, uh, well, no, well, uh, is not an answer. You know, what's the distributed load? What is it above 40 degrees? You know, what's the GPM flow rate? You know, what's your friction loss from the rear intake? And a lot of people, you know, Dan McCauley from Boston, he and I kind of did some of that in Hutto together and with uh, Matt Paglione, you know, and you're sitting there looking at it and you don't want to be that person, but these guys have got to understand what they're dealing with. It's right. more than just say, I ride on a ladder truck. It comes down to what do you do with it when you get there? And to truly answer that question, you have to know the apparatus. Yeah, you got to know the ins and outs. No doubt. Absolutely. Are you, I mean, is that your thing, Larry? Are you a big truck guy? I prefer engine work. I mean, I prefer truck work over engine work because I tell the engine guys all the time, you know, anybody, a Cub Scout troop can push a line in and squirt water at a fire. Uh, it, it, takes, uh, it takes a real firefighter to get on the roof and figure out where to cut a hole. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, your engine guys will tell you, yeah, you only cut a hole so that way you can see the real firemen inside working, you know, all the usual lines. Of but course. I, I like truck work better. I prefer the ventilation. I prefer the search. You know, I, I used to take a great amount of pride in chunking ground ladders. You know, it's one of the things that fundamentally just irks me. We put firefighters, our fellow crew members, people we sleep next to and that we eat with, we'll put them on the second, third, or fourth, or higher floor, but we don't give them another way out of the building. Every one of these damn fire trucks carries X number of ground ladders that aren't welded to the fire truck. They're meant to come off. So, you know, get the aerial out of the cradle, put it up, and those ground ladders need to be thrown. And so, I mean, it, it's one of my pet peeves. You know, if you're a RIT team and it's a two-story house, you better have ground ladders up because yeah. – there's no guarantee that Mayday is going to be on Division One, And we just have to – we have to utilize the tools we have out of wanting to do the job and not avoid using them out of laziness. I, that's it, too, complacency. And then, you know, the other thing, too, is like, oh, it's a one-room job. I mean, you know, you, you look at – and what I mean by that is, yeah, the fire's going to go out. Line goes in, fire goes out. What do we need to throw ladders on on four sides? I mean, I – I've been to fires that have excessive ground ladders, and I've been to fires that have no ground ladders, right? Um, and, and aerials, and not to cut you off, but the aerial no, to me, is, in Houston, it was always my thing. If we were first in, and it was an investigation, there was nothing on the box, nothing evident, my goal was to have the aerial up into the roof before they tapped it out. Because it was proficiency for me with throwing the jacks, getting it yeah. up, spotting the aerial, and so that way when it was burning and it was real, yeah, it's it was nature. Exactly. It just clicked along and you got it done. 
And so we tried to pass that on to the other guys. When somebody else was driving the truck, you know, hey, get the stick up. Let's get it up. And I was the person giving the roof report because my chief got comfortable with it. Now, you know, all the chiefs that, that I had the, the, the pleasure to work with, they'd all tell you I parked the truck on purpose to block their view. Uh, but I'd also <laughs> tell them if you park correctly, it wouldn't be an issue. Uh, oh, that's right. But you know, it, it comes down to, you know, you got to want to do your job. You know, I still have bunker gear that's NFPA certified and all the rest of that because I take a certain amount of pride still putting it on and being with the guys. And unfortunately, it goes back full circle to what we said earlier. Just because you become the head of an organization doesn't exempt you from the requirements that you put upon your people. That's right. Hmm. That's right. Well said. Yeah. Very well said. So we were we were talking about it before. What's next for Larry DiCamillo? Outside of the district growing, um, you know, I saw you in action. I saw you doing some teaching that weekend. Um, you got any of that up your sleeve? Because I think you bring tremendous value uh, in your experiences to the fire service. And I think that uh, you need to get yourself out there a little bit and do some teaching. Are you doing any now? You know, it's, again, it goes back to the HFD curse. You know, Mo Davis probably has one of the best platforms right now with regard to his aggressive command. Uh, that, that's really shined a light on the Houston Fire Department. And yeah. Mo was the first one that's really kind of stepped out and brought that. There's a lot of chiefs in the Houston Fire Department that subscribe to that theory, a lot of company officers, a lot of firefighters. Uh, me personally, yeah, and I'd love to teach uh, and be able to pass that on, but I've always considered myself a horrible instructor because I'm extremely self-conscious. Uh, but at the same time, too, I think that anybody can have value if they believe in something passionately and if they truly understand it. And I don't profess to be the best person in the world when it comes to truck work, but it's kind of what I did for most of my career. And I think that, yeah, if I could teach a little bit more, sure. You know, I'm trying to get, uh, you know, Aaron to, I said Mo can't leave Texas and go up north to go work for Aaron unless he has a Texas escort. Um, so <laughs> it, it, you know, yeah, these Texas guys, you know, and we got to travel in groups. Uh, but I yeah, I, I'd like to look at that because this is a young man's game. You know, I'll be 50 this year, and quite honestly, you know, my body doesn't hold up as well as it used to, and my mouth still works. So, uh, you know, hey, why I know not? that first. I know that firsthand, Larry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. God, you label a guy one time, one dinner, one, one time. He goes, he goes, why you? That was the best part about it, right? We sit down. He goes, I've heard about why, why you? Why do you? Why are you doing this? Why you? Do you remember what I told you? No, I don't. I, said, I was. I said, because my balls are bigger than anybody else's. What the hell, man? You know, like, listen, at the, end, at the end of the day, right? And this is why I, said, I just said this to you. You know, we, we with National Fire Radio want to surround ourselves with good guys. You know, guys that are like-minded, guys that just absolutely love this. It's a lifestyle. We mentioned it before. It's a lifestyle. To be able to sit here tonight and chat with you because we've met, you know, we met once on a weekend and then we've just chatted back and forth or whatever. It's like-minded people. And that's why I said, I think there's more for you out there um, because I think you bring a good message. And I think that your love for the job and your experiences and your storytelling trumps you not wanting to put yourself out there a little bit. I think that you owe the fire service something by putting it back out there. Um, and I appreciate that because I, I take, you know, like tonight I cherish experiences like this. And this is truly why we started National Fire Radio. It's a selfish endeavor. It's the fact that it gave myself and I dragged Rob into it yeah. to, to find a way to just to have storytelling and to, to do this and to grow camaraderie and brotherhood. And so national fire radio, it's a selfish endeavor for me. 
it, it allows me to have this. And, and so I'm, I'm forever grateful. Um, and so, and I want that for you and, and all the other guys that we, that we hang with and that we've gotten to know over the years with this. Um, Larry, I think you're doing great things, pal. I love talking to you. I think that uh, we just scratched the surface with you, truthfully. We didn't even go into tactics and, you know, no. the perspective. Oh, God, let's not talk about roof ventilation. That's where I was going. Oh, I know. I was, I was going back and forth with Captain Dugan earlier today, and he's like, ah, just go and tell him whatever you think. You'll be That's fine. Fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I love it because, you know, my, my, you know, you and I chatted about it briefly, and I said, listen, I love guys that, can, that have an opinion and can back it up, you know, too often – uh, you know, it, it's funny. It, it, a lot of people think that in ways I, I can be a bully. And, and, uh, and I said, well, I'm not a bully. I just, I'm very opinionated, believe in my view. I said, but I welcome anybody else to challenge my point of view. And if you can, if you can sell yourself to me and your point of view to me, I'll bow down to you. I'll back out and say, it's your way, bud. I got no problem. But my way, my way in life will always be the best way to do it unless somebody can prove, prove otherwise. Oh, Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I mean, nobody will ever tell you that I'm not an opinionated person or that I'm the right. quiet guy who sits in the corner. Uh, but no, I, I agree with you. I, I think that if you, if you find yourself having a strong opinion, typically nine times out of 10, it's because you've walked the walk at some point and you at least have some shred of credibility of what you're talking about. And the problem is people have to realize that just because your way works and you believe in it, doesn't mean that there's not another way that works also. Right. And that you don't know about, and we're we're too quick as firemen to put blinders on, and it's that whole macho BS that we do, and we think that there's only this way to do it. You know, in the Houston Fire Department, oh, you got to wear a reed hood, you have to do this, that, and the other. Well, I assure you, fire is still going out in Denver, Colorado, right now, right? Uh, or San Mateo, or you know, Naperville, Illinois. You know, it's still going to go out, and just because different people operate differently doesn't mean that they're operating right or wrong. And That's I, right. I think we all have something to learn from each other. And that's the fun conversation for me because as, as opinionated as I am and believe in what I believe in, most of our platform, especially on Instagram, is built on sharing other people's ideas, tricks, and hacks. Sure. And for me, it's funny because, like, my world is – I live in my own world. And like I said, I believe in myself 100%. But if somebody, can, if somebody can speak their point of view and prove to me that it's a better idea than mine or a better thought process than mine or a better way to do something – then man, I'm, I support them 110%, but Absolutely. often, too often people can't back up what they say. And that Agreed. drives me nuts, right? You know, you don't like how I do it? Fine. How do you want to do it? But, but that's endemic with the generational differences in the fire service. You've got so many people that are coming up now, they're so exposed to all the different platforms that they form an opinion based upon what they watch or hear yeah. without right. using their hands and doing it. You're right. And then they will dig in and fight like hell that they're right when in reality, you'll find that they've never made a trench cut. They've never been on a pitch. They've, you know, never pushed a line in, you know, through the front door with door control, trying to control flow path. They've been to a class. But realistically, that's the kind of stuff that gets people in trouble. You get emotionally yeah. attached to the knowledge. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good point. So, to bring it around, brother. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This has been great, man. We've been going for like an hour and a half or so. I like three pages of notes here from Larry. This is awesome. Well, and, and Larry, this isn't going to be our last doings with you. I do want to bring you back for a couple other things. We do, um, we're starting to do our YouTube live, uh, which is a live show with a couple guys where we tackle some 
conversations and so on. I'd love to have you on that um, on a on a uh, on one night with us. So we'll yeah, talk love about that. But I just I enjoy it. I I think um, for me it's nice to sit back with a guest and really listen. And tonight I I certainly did that because I think you have a lot to say and 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 it's very much driven by experience and uh, and I appreciate that and I appreciate you being here tonight and sharing your story with us um, and I wish you nothing but the most success with uh, everything that you have going I know you're a busy man um, and so on but uh, I wish it's you just coronavirus I mean yeah I mean that's just monopolizing every bit of time I you know and we've been talking about it a lot so I kind of didn't even want to bring it up tonight and mention it um, you know because typically conversations are overrun with what everybody's dealing with uh, oh, yeah with the COVID and Corona right now and so on. But, um, you know, I'm sure as a chief of a metropolitan department, you're dealing with it, uh, you know, on levels that I don't even want to know about truthfully. I'm we actually had the first response to a coronavirus uh, case in Texas by a fire department was us. Lucky you. Oh yeah. So March 4th, <laughs> it has been a marathon run at sprint pace. Yeah. I don't even want to. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know what the end is on this, right? It's one thing on the operational level, fine, but all the back end stuff, the FEMA stuff, the the re, uh, response, insurance, billing, the oh yeah. Well, and, and the funny part is how we're structured. You know, while I'm at, while I'm the top, I have the title of fire chief. I also am have the fire marshal's office and emergency management answers to me. So all of this falls underneath the emergency management uh, department. So obviously. Uh, I did a, a time analysis the other day, and I think I came up with like 88% of my time right now is dedicated to emergency management, 5% to the fire marshal. So do the math on what's left for the fire department. But again, it goes back to what I said earlier. I've got great people that handle business. The fires go out, the medically, uh, you know, medical calls get addressed. And uh, so, so we're able to have that flexibility. Yeah, good. Well, listen, brother, I thank you. Um, I wish you the best with the, with the coronavirus and, managing a department and, and leading a department, I should say. Um, you know, I know you got your hands full, so taking time out tonight and just uh, giving us an hour and a half, two hours here. Um, I appreciate it, man. And yeah. I look forward to doing a lot more with you um, and so on. And I cherish our friendship, our, our bud sure. buttoning friendship here that is just, <laughs> you know, the sky's the limit, pal. Hey, hey, the next time I get a van with you, I'll give you five minutes to take all the shots you want, and then, and then it's okay. <laughs> I got you with the back tattoo. I got you back, man. Dude. That, that dude, was hilarious. I'm surprised you didn't open with that tonight. I, you know, that was hilarious. No, I don't want a Halligan and a stethoscope tattoo. I mean, come on. That's hot, man. That's that part about that evening is Mo Davis looking at me and going, looks like Clary and Jeremy are getting along fine. They're going to be good <laughs> friends. Yeah. Yeah, old Mo Davis. Yeah. You know, it's uh, you know, when you get two strong personalities in the room. I mean, we're all alphas, man. So somebody, somebody. Well, and the only thing that separates then is who can drink more. So that's right. So well, I win. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I'm a lightweight. But Larry, man, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for taking time hey, well, out there. My right, mustache looks better than yours. That. <laughs> I'm trying to grow my Eric Haskins. Is it working? Yeah, it looks. I, we're going to have to take it. We'll put it up yeah. in the chat group when we're done here, and we'll see who's – Rob, did you get any still photos of this tonight? I did. I, get, I got one. It was not good, though, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see here. The shadow's terrible. I can't see my mustache. There's Larry's. I'll just – Larry, right now I'm taking a still shot. It looks like a mug shot. I'm going to put some numbers in front of it. Yeah, there you go. That looks like That looks like you just got jacked up straight out of the trailer park, brother. Come on, man. 
<laughs> come on. Hey, when are y'all going to come down to Texas again and do your show on the road? Well, so fun conversation about that. Um, we have some opportunities down there. It's just a matter of uh, pulling the trigger. Um, and being we, we able to travel. Tap events. What was that, Rob? And being able to travel. Yeah, well, small detail. Airfare is cheap right now. Yeah. Airfare is very cheap right now. We just, we're just not allowed to go, I don't think. Anybody outside of where we live has to uh, be quarantined for 14 days before they, uh, they get allowed into the general population anyway. But. Well, if you come down here, I'll show you. Uh, and you can come by and visit the department. And, and our apparatus committee did a hell of a job on a new rescue engine and a new 107-foot uh, quint that uh, awesome. about four months ago. Well, so we, we will certainly – We will certainly take you up on that. There's no doubt. Because just like yourself, we are oh, yeah. nerds as well. So that's, uh, that's a given, man. Well, I'm, I'm starving for content. I'm running out of content with this – with the quarantine and not being allowed to visit other departments. I mean, we – you know, typically with the apparatus innovations and departmental visits we do, I mean, we usually do, I don't know, four, five, six a month where we yeah. shoot content for three hours each time we're there. I mean, so we're, uh, we're way behind on what the type of content we pump out and what we do on top of the podcast and everything else, but we'll get there. I mean, what are you going to do? There's nothing I can well, do. Well, I mean, when it comes to the apparatus stuff, I mean, for department, if you want to make it down to the Houston area, just let me know with enough advance notice. We'll get you set up all in the entire Houston metro area, and we'll get it scored. So we'll take we'll take advantage of that. I appreciate that, brother. I thank you for that uh, that invitation. Sweet. Absolutely. Look forward to it. And I'll even buy you. Thank you, sir. Maybe we'll <laughs> get matching tattoos while I'm there. Ooh, don't tempt me. I've been wanting to get another one. I know. I know that Halligan <laughs> stethoscope looked great on your back. So didn't it? I thought it was a little centered to, you know, not centered enough, but hey, I, I, I guess. Looks good. It rounds, it rounds out your uh, your barbed wire tattoo on your legs. Well, everybody, this is Rob, Jeremy, Larry, Willow. Thank you for joining us at National Fire Radio. And uh, it's been a great evening before this gets even weirder. Rob, yeah, thanks for being responsible. We appreciate no it. No problem. <laughs> All right, guys, take care for Jeremy and, and Rob. And Larry, thanks, pal. Appreciate it. Always good seeing you. I'll be safe. Talk to you soon. Thanks, man. Bye-bye.